how many of you are about three days into a new diet and exercise program? <laughs> Anybody? Okay, I have at least one. Um, how many of you are maybe planning on starting that tomorrow because it's still the weekend, so it still technically qualifies as last year? So today you're planning what meals you will eat and what horrible things you will put into your body. But tomorrow, you'll start your new diet and exercise program. How many of you are on day three, four of your one-year Bible, which you've promised you're going to get through this year, actually finish, get past numbers, <laughs> and get all the way to December this year? Okay, it's a new year. All right, we tend to make resolutions in the new year, and our resolutions tend to reflect the priorities that we want to have. There's a big difference between January and December. January, generally, our priorities are the things that we want, and December reflects kind of the priorities we have. So January, we want to eat better, we want to exercise more, we want to watch less TV, we want to read more, we want to spend more time with our family. And by December, we find we're eating worse, we're gaining weight, we don't exercise anymore, we stopped reading because there's so much good stuff on TV, and if we're spending quality time with our family, it's usually in front of the TV, and then we kind of promise ourselves we'll do better next year, right? We want purpose, we want our priorities to be defined by purpose, but what we find is by the end of every year, our priorities really are comfort. It's just, we just trend toward comfort. We just trend toward what's easier, what's more comfortable. Today we're starting um, <clears throat> back in our series in Acts, and we're going to look at a group of people whose actions are defined by purposeful priorities, people who have priorities that have purpose and their, their actions and their lives are actually defined by that, a group of people who prioritize purpose over comfort. And just to remind you of where we've been in our book study of Acts, whether you've been here the whole time or whether this is the first morning that you've heard us talk about the book of Acts, let's just give a little bit of a recap of where we've been. And the way we have described the book of Acts and what we're going to see and hear through the book of Acts is that the book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people equipped with an irresistible message doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. A group of ordinary people with an irresistible message doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we've seen through the first few chapters of Acts is the explosive growth of the early church. We've seen it just explode. The Spirit of God has done a work and has drawn all of these people into the church, into this new family of believers. And then we've seen this, this irresistible message that has impacted their heart. The message is Jesus, and we've seen a bunch of people reorient their entire life around Jesus. They've built a community that reflects that together. So the early church is really defined by that, by that message that they've heard and how they've responded to that message. And then we see a group of people that are committed to proclaiming Jesus and loving like Jesus. A group of people who want to tell other people about the love of Jesus Christ and what he's done, and a group of people that want to love each other like Jesus, like a family. And there's some genuine excitement among them about what God is doing in them and through them. And we see these, these episodes where they preach the gospel and thousands of people come to faith 
in Jesus Christ and are added to their family. And then before our Christmas series began, we, we started to see how as the message continued and progressed, that they met with more and more opposition and more and more resistance to the message. And so the more effective they became at proclaiming God's message of salvation and the truth of who Jesus was, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the greater the resistance and even persecution. And those that opposed the message at first, it was annoying, and then it was a problem, and now we've come to a point where the message of the gospel, for those who oppose it, is actually a threat. It is an offense, and it's a threat to their way of life, and so the opposition becomes greater and greater. And so far, through the book of Acts, we've seen the message of the apostles has been, we will not stop telling people about Jesus Christ, and we will not stop loving each other as he would. That's their message over and over, even in the face of opposition and persecution and resistance. So if you're asking what priorities they want, their priorities are purposeful. Their priorities are to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and to love each other as he would. And so far, the priorities they want and the priorities that they have seem to be in alignment no matter the opposition, whether they've been thrown in prison or beaten or told in very strong words not to do this anymore by people who have a lot of power and the ability to kill them, they have said, we will not stop telling people about Jesus. So the priorities they want and the priorities they have are in alignment. And this morning, we're going to look at the continued opposition as the word goes out and how do they respond in difficulty and to resistance what does it look like to have your priorities, the ones that you want and the ones that you have, actually be the same thing? So before we open the word this morning, I just ask if you would pray before we read the word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, I just pray that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us this morning through your word and that we would hear you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your priorities, and I pray that you would help us to understand what that looks like in our own lives. Lord, would you speak through your word this morning to us? In your name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> That's where we left off in our study of Acts. If you don't have a Bible this morning, if you want to raise your hand, we have them on the aisle here, and we will pass one down to you. If that's too uncomfortable, you're welcome to just listen along. But if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we just want you to know that those are available to you. So even after the service, you're welcome to just grab one and take that home with you if you would like. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we're actually going to cover the entire chapter this morning, which is a lot, but it, thankfully it's a short chapter. If you're using our Bible, we're on page 914 of the New Testament. And really, this chapter breaks into two stories, two stories that are connected, but we're going to take them in pieces. So we're going to start with part one, which is just the first seven verses of Acts chapter six. So let me read that for you this morning. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want you to notice something about the structure of these seven verses. These seven verses are going to present a problem that's facing the early church within the church itself, within the community of believers. But look at how this is sandwiched in growth and increase. Look at verse 1. says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the problem is actually a growth problem. The problem is coming because there are so many of them. They are so diverse. The church is growing so fast. It's actually a growing pain that they're experiencing here. But then look at verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So the problem is sandwiched in growth. And what we'll see is that the appropriate resolution of the problem actually contributes to further growth of the church. But this is a threat facing the early church. And throughout our study of Acts, and in many circles outside of the church, the early church is held up as this kind of gold standard <clears throat> that we measure ourselves against. And we say, look at the way that they care for each other. And look at the way that they meet each other's needs. And look at the way they proclaim the gospel. And why can't we be more like that? And there's a lot of truth in that. Because a lot of times, I think for us, church has become an accumulation of knowledge. How much can we know about the Bible? Or it's become kind of a self-help religion, like what can I learn that will make my life better or what will give me peace in difficult times? And it's become less about caring for people and it's become less about proclaiming the gospel. But the truth is, for the early church in Acts, it was not all rainbows and unicorns. It wasn't all easy. There are difficult problems that they're facing and this is one of them. And they need a wise resolution to this issue or it's going to become more divisive than helpful, the church. But what is the problem? What's the problem here? It says that a complaint arises from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. What does that mean? You remember that the church has grown from this huge number of people who have seen the Holy Spirit at work and have heard the gospel proclaimed in Jerusalem. So there are people from all walks of life that are a part of the early church that really have nothing in common other than Jesus. And so you have a minority in the church of Greek-speaking Jews. And they are lodging a complaint against those who speak Aramaic, the Hebrew Jews, and saying, hey, we're being ignored here. In fact, our widows are being ignored in the daily distribution. What is the daily distribution? Just to remind you, because it's been a while since we've been in Acts, if you just go back a few chapters to chapter 2, it says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's a daily distribution of, of goods that are going out to the church to meet needs of those that can't meet needs for themselves. And there's a group of people who have said, hey, you are neglecting our people. 
we're a minority, we don't speak the same language, who will advocate for us? And so they've brought this complaint. So the reality is, or the complaint is at least, that these Greek-speaking widows, this minority group, are being neglected. And whether that's just an oversight or whether that's an issue of communication, it's a real problem. But there's really two things at stake here. There are really two issues that we need to be concerned about or that they need to be concerned about. The first is the complaint that they're being ignored. The, the concern is that the family of God becomes divided, becomes disunified because of this and actually fractures over this slight or over this neglect. And as a result, their testimony becomes ineffective because when the community of believers looks no different than anyone else, then the testimony of the believers is nullified. When you don't look any different than anyone outside of the church, then the compelling aspects of the gospel and what it means for day-to-day life lose their power and their impact. So there's this stated priority to love people like Jesus and to care for people like Jesus and say, let's not just preach it, let's actually do it. And so these people are saying, hey, we say we're about this, but we're not really about this in this way. There's an oversight here. But there's a second issue at stake, and it's really brought up by the apostles themselves. They say, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. The competing concern is that the family of God would be so consumed with itself, so consumed with meeting its own needs, so consumed with caring for the people within the church that they would stop proclaiming the gospel at all that the church has become so big now and we have so many needs to meet that we could spend all of our time taking care of each other instead of proclaiming the word of God. And there's no value in that. Like we have to proclaim the word of God. It's a priority to us. Both things are stated priorities and they're competing against each other. So what is the solution that they come up with? The apostles pull everyone together, all of the believers together, so that they can talk this through together. And clearly, it had been suggested to them that they're preaching too much. You guys need to stop preaching and come back and take care of the church. You need to take care of the believers like we said we were going to be about. Do you remember that? The reason I say it's clear that that's been suggested is because of their response. They say it's not right in verse 12 that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now, I have to say, at first read, it sounds a little arrogant. (laughs) It's kind of like, we're better than that. We're better than serving people. We're preaching. That's not their heart. And we know that's not their heart because we see their ministry and we see that these are men that are dedicated to the service. They're the ones who've set the priorities from Jesus. They've taken that set of priorities and they're the ones that (laughs) have disseminated that. They're the ones that have preached the gospel. The word of God has gone out that all these believers are even together in the first place. So they have the same priorities, but they're like, look, we have to proclaim the word of God. We can't spend all of our time handing out food. So what do they do? They formulate a plan that demonstrates that these two Competing values are not mutually exclusive. We're not going to do one or the other. We're going to do both. Does that sound good to everybody? And everyone says, yes. They say in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, 
full of the spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. They say, you're right, this is an issue. So let's get some people together and let's solve the problem. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So hey, let's do both. Is that okay with everyone? Verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Yes, that's okay with everyone. And they chose, and then it lists the people that they choose. And one of them, most of you will recognize, Stephen is the first one in the list. But he says, Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. I hope none of you are Greek, by the way, because I'm butchering these names. <laughs> the question is, why, why does Luke tell us the whole list of names? Why does Luke tell us all seven guys? We know that some of them are notable. We know that Stephen we're going to hear more about even later in the chapter and into chapter 7. But why does he tell us all seven names? Well, first, there's a historical aspect to the way that Luke is writing. You remember at the beginning of the book, he's writing to Theophilus. And he's saying, I'm trying to give you a picture of everything that's happened not only in the life of Jesus, which I wrote in the Gospel of Luke, but now in Acts as well, so that you know what has gone on. So there's like a historicity here that he's trying to preserve. But there's something notable about the seven men, and I kind of gave a clue already. If you're Greek, you know already. You look at those names, they're all Greek. Who is the minority that's being slighted here? The Greek widows, the Greek-speaking Jews. These are all Greek Jews, except one guy. It says Nicholas is the proselyte. He's a convert a Gentile who's now a Jew. He's converted. All Greek-speaking Jews. So they say there's a problem with the minority group in our church, the Greek-speaking Jews. So let's get some Greek-speaking Jews that can help us solve the problem. Not to say it's your problem. It's to say, hey, you guys know the issue. So will you guys help us solve it? And not only that, but after they gather them all together, it's not like they just hand it over to them. Then they bring them before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. This is something they're doing together. You guys have identified a problem, let's fix it. And so let's find people who are aware of the problem and can help us solve it and then we'll pray over you so that you can do this well. The result is that more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they've stuck to their priorities they said, these are the things that are important. We want to preach the gospel. We want to care for each other like Jesus would. And then this issue comes up and they say, well, we can't, we don't want to compromise those. So let's find a way to do both. And they do. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse seven, it says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Jewish priests, the temple priests are coming to faith in Jesus. Uh-oh. That's going to be a problem. Before we get to that, it's really easy to read this, kind of summarize it and say, yep, that's what happened. But let me just ask you for a minute, <clears throat> what if this were to happen in your life? Or maybe it's easier to think of this in the life of the church. What if this were to happen in the life of our church? How would we respond? I ask this because we have stated similar priorities as a church. We've said we want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to our community, to anyone who doesn't know the love of Jesus. And we want to love each other like a family. We want to love each other the way that Jesus would want us to love each other as, the, as his believers. But what's going to happen to us as we pursue those priorities? 
In this year, if we think of New Year's resolutions, if we think of what do we want to be about, what are the priorities that we want, what's going to happen when we do that? Because the truth is, we have barely started our ministry in La Habra. And I don't mean that to hurt anyone's feelings, <laughs> because I know you're working hard, and this is hard work, and you've put in a lot of effort, and you're tired. But the truth is that in 2015 is when we really have an opportunity to start to impact our community. And we have life groups that will choose a mission this year, a people and a place to serve and to love like Jesus. They're going to identify that group of people for a year and they're going to love them and that's going to change us. And by the grace of God, that may change some people who don't know him and expose the love of God to our community. But I have to assume that if we do that and if we live that way, then we're going to meet with resistance. And the more effective we are at proclaiming the gospel, the harder it's going to get. And the more effective we are at telling people about the love of Jesus and loving each other like Jesus, that we're going to see more and more problems arise and more and more things come that would divide us. And the question is, what will we do then? Will we maintain our stated priorities or will we drift back to what's comfortable, which is we don't have to be that bold about proclaiming the gospel. I mean, I'll tell someone if they ask. I don't have to love you like Jesus would love you. I mean, I'll be nice to you, but I don't have to have you in my home because you're weird or you're just hard to be around or I'm hard to be around. What's going to happen when we're actually called on the carpet to do what we've said we want to do? That's the question. And what I see in this passage in Acts chapter 6 is a group of men who see a problem, a group of people who see a problem, they see an issue arise in the church, and they don't just walk away. They don't just say, you know what, this isn't really meeting our needs. This isn't working for us. We're out of here. They bring the problem to the leaders and say, this is an issue. And they say, great, help us solve it. Okay, we'll help you solve it. Let's do it together. Let's be about the things we've said we want to be about. My hope and my prayer is that we would be that kind of a church, that we would be that kind of a body of believers who would work together, even though it's difficult and it's going to get harder, to say, let's be about what we said we want to be about. Let's give glory to God and let's proclaim him and let's love each other like Jesus so that people would look at us and say, wow, there's something different about that and I want to know more about it. The second half of Acts chapter 6 is kind of a preview for where we're going to be next week. <clears throat> it's going to talk a little bit more about Stephen. And um, I probably don't have time to do this justice this morning, but let me just point out a couple of things that we see here in this account of Stephen. Because Stephen is one of these guys that is identified, one of these Greek-speaking Jews that's been identified to take care of this problem. But Stephen also believes that it's not mutually exclusive. It's not like, well, I'm caring for the widows, so I can't proclaim the gospel. Stephen's doing both. He's committed to both. We know that because of the response that he gets. <laughs> we know that he's proclaiming boldly that Jesus is the Messiah because of the way that people react to him. So look with me in verse 8 of chapter 6. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, 
rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. I want to point out a couple of things. It says that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. When else has Luke said that about someone? Luke said that about the apostles. And why is that? Why is Stephen able to do this? Because he's magic? No, because like the apostles, he's filled with the Spirit. It says in verse 5, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. Verse 10, the wisdom and the Spirit with which Stephen was speaking made it impossible for them to argue with him. And look at all of the people that he's offended. Here's how we know that he is boldly proclaiming the gospel. Because look at the long list of people that have come up against him to argue against him about what he's claiming. And what is he claiming? What is his message? It's the same message that Jesus preached. And we know that because as we continue, verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So all of these people are offended by the message that, Jesus, that uh, Stephen is preaching. And it's the same message that Jesus preached. How do we know? Because this looks exactly like what happened to Jesus. They're accusing him of the same things that they accused Jesus of. And they, it says they stirred up all these false witnesses and they, <clears throat> they stirred up the people and they instigated all these things. The thing that I want to point out is that this is not a mistake. This is not just a misunderstanding. The word of God has gone out and it has offended people. And they understand what Stephen is saying and that's why they're so mad about it. It's not just that they misunderstood the message and so they're acting in righteous anger against him. Look at what it says. It says they secretly instigated. They set up false witnesses. They stirred up the people against him. And at the end of the chapter, it says his face is glowing like the face of an angel. They know what they're doing and they know there's something different about this guy. It's very clear. He's glowing. So they know where they stand. But the message of the gospel has offended them so deeply that it doesn't matter to them. The second thing is that Stephen's message is Jesus' message. We talk about Acts being the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth, and Stephen's message is the continuation of Jesus' message. Hear what they're accusing him of? He said that Jesus would tear down the temple. He said that Jesus would change everything. He would change the law of Moses. He would do all of these things. Is that true? Did Jesus say that? Sort of. He sort of did, and he sort of didn't. You remember in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns over the tables and chases the money changers out of the temple, and he's really angry, and they say, hey, what gives you the right to do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Do you remember that exchange? And they're like, it took 46 years to build the temple, tough guy. How are you going to do that in three days? And then John says, he wasn't talking about the temple, he's talking about his body, Okay, I know this is getting confusing. I know we're getting lost in here. This is what 
Stephen is preaching and it's what Jesus was preaching. Here's the question, and John Piper asked this very well. (laughs) Why would Jesus make such a confusing statement that he knew everyone would misunderstand? Why would he say that? If Jesus is just talking about his body, like, yeah, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to come back to life in three days. And he was talking about his body because John says that that's what he was talking about. But that's not all that he was talking about. There's a fuller understanding to what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means that Stephen understands because Stephen is preaching the same thing. And the priests understand it too because they're either offended by it and they're going to arrest him for it or they're converted and they're becoming followers of Jesus. So the message is clear and here's what the message is. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ does not only mean that Jesus died and rose again three days later. It means that when Jesus died and rose again, the temple was no longer necessary. That the priests were no longer necessary. That the sacrifices were no longer necessary. You remember when Christ died, the veil rips in half. The glory of God no longer resides in the temple. It resides on Jesus, his son, who's been glorified and sits at his right hand. And so the message is, as John Piper says, Jesus meant When I die, the temple dies. When I'm destroyed, the temple's destroyed. The whole system, all the sacrifices, all this blood flowing to make atonement for sin, all this priestly activity surrounding the holy place where God's presence dwells, it all ends when I die. You destroy me, and in dying, I destroy the temple. So was Jesus saying what they were accusing him of saying? Sort of. Was Stephen saying it? Sort of. They're just twisting the truth of those words and turning it into an accusation against them to say that they despise everything that we stand for as a culture and as a people and they're speaking blasphemy against God. And Jesus and Stephen are saying, we're not speaking blasphemy, we just get it. And it gives new meaning to verse seven when it says all these priests are coming to faith in Jesus because they get it too. And the truth is the message of the gospel is either offensive or it's everything. It's either what's going to save them or what it's going to destroy them. It's either what they're going to run to and hold on to or it's what they're going to trip over. And so even to the priests, the message is either you're no longer necessary because as Isaiah 53 said, there is now an intercessor that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. That Jesus is the mediator, and he takes care of that for us. You don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to sacrifice anymore. It's done. The work is finished. And that's either a huge relief or a huge offense. And we're going to see more about Stephen next week. We're going to talk about his story and what happens. And we're going to see what happens when people are so deeply offended by the gospel that they will do anything to stop it. We're already seeing that, the lengths that they're willing to go to, to put an end to the gospel message. We said that the book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people with an irresistible message. Jesus is the irresistible message. And he is the great offense or the great salvation. And we're really faced with the same choice as followers of Jesus Christ or those who are hearing the message maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, the question is, is Jesus the thing we will cling to for salvation and put our trust in to save us? Or is he the thing we will trip over 
Is he the thing that will cause such great offense that we will do, we'll stop at nothing to stop that message from going out? See, the apostles and the early church placed a high value, a high priority on the proclamation of the gospel and the care of the body of believers. And despite the opposition and the resistance and the persecution that came, they continually made decisions and choices based on that set of values, based on that set of priorities. That the harder it came, the harder they clung to Christ and the more they pursued those things and said, it's not okay for us to stop proclaiming the gospel. It's not okay for us to stop caring for each other. And it doesn't matter how hard it's going to get. Stephen is going to be the poster child for that. That it doesn't matter how hard it gets, I will cling to Jesus Christ as my Savior. And we're going to see more of that even next week. So the question for us then this morning becomes, what priorities do we want and what priorities do we have and are they the same? And the real question becomes, how do we maintain these priorities throughout the year? If we say we're about telling people about Jesus and loving people like Jesus, and that includes us, loving each other like a family, how do we maintain that in December and not just in January? And how do we set ourselves up so that in three months from now, we don't just give up? Because it's hard, and we're going to get tired. And some of you already are. (laughs) Many of you already are. And you've been working hard. And it becomes more and more difficult This year we have an opportunity to be a part of something. We have an opportunity to be a part of a work that God can do in our community. We have an opportunity to have a front row seat to that work that God will do. Not because we're gonna work really hard at it and God's gonna honor our hard work so we're gonna work really hard to bring people to Jesus. We don't do that. We're just gonna be committed and we're gonna set these as our priorities and then together we're gonna come together and say, Let's remember what we said we want to be about. We want to be about proclaiming the gospel and we want to love people like Jesus. That's what this is for. That's what life groups are for. Because this is hard. And as you know, if you started a new diet or you started a one-year Bible, if you have no accountability, you don't tell anyone you're doing it, that's going to last about three days. That's going to be like, none of this tastes good. Or I don't understand what this chapter even means. And pretty soon you're not going to do it at all. That's why we have to get together regularly. That's why we have to keep putting this in front of each other to say, hey, remember, we're the family of God. This is what we're about. Now let's go do this. And when it gets hard between us, we don't just walk away. We say, hey, there's a problem. How can we resolve this? Because we want this to be a place that looks different than every place else. And when there's a problem that faces us from the outside and we're meeting resistance and even persecution, that we would come together and we would pray and we'd say, remember what we want to be about. We are the children of God. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. And there's going to be a day where we stand before him. And how do I want to have lived my life? Not because he's going to love me more because I worked harder. That's not true. He loves you now. He loved you when you were even worse than now. He loved you at your lowest. We're not trying to earn his love. We're just trying to bring him glory. And we have a very brief time in which to do it. We're going to be standing before him before we know it. So what do we want our life to look like until we meet him? 
you have a connection card with you, and Joe has already prompted you to fill that out. But I would just say in our time of worship now, as we sing a little bit before we dismiss, I would just encourage you to think about that. What do I want my life to look like? What are the priorities that I want, and are they the same as the priorities that I have? And if you need us to pray for you, we would love to pray for you. If you have a story that you want to tell us about what God is doing and how you've seen him and you're just encouraged, you want to share that with us, then share that. If you're like, hey, I'm not even in a life group and that sounds really hard, that mission thing you're talking about, but that sounds good. I need that. I need to be with other believers. Then sign up. Maybe you don't know the Lord at all. You're like, I don't know. I can't promise you it would be comfortable. In fact, I'm pretty sure I just promised you it wouldn't be. All I can say is, Jesus loves you. God is pursuing you relentlessly to be a part of his family. And he's done all the work. And he just says, I love you. Be my child. You will never experience blessing like you will experience with me. Doesn't mean it will be comfortable. But it is the best possible life you can live. Life with him forever, for eternity. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're so blessed to know you. We're so blessed to serve a God who loves us so desperately. Lord, would you help us to love you, to proclaim you, even when that's difficult, even when that's met with resistance? Because it is important that people know you, and it is important that people see your love, a love that people can only experience because of a relationship with you. So we pray that we would be those people defined by those things and that the same things would be true of us in December but that you might also bring some people alongside us, Lord, that come to faith this year because you've brought them to faith in you through your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.